You're listening to The Best Possible Taste on West Limerick 102 FM. A very good evening to you and thanks for tuning in to tonight's Best Possible Taste with me, Sharon Noonan. Tonight's show is a great lineup, and Ron Forrestal will be here to talk about wines with an Irish connection. Michelin star chef Oliver Dunn will be explaining the detrimental effect that no-shows have on the restaurant industry. Sid Sheehan will be calling in to discuss food intolerances and I'll be putting a call in to Mark Murphy at the Dingle Food Festival to get a heads up on Kerry's premier food festival that's on in just a few weeks' time from the 2nd to the 4th of October. Before we welcome tonight's first guest to the studio, here's how to get in touch with me. You can email me s.noonan at live.ie or tweet me at Queen of Org, short for Queen of Organisation. And I'm always on the lookout for food and drink news, interesting stories and of course delicious recipes. Recipes, so do please get in touch. So Ron Forrestal is my first guest in studio tonight and we're going to talk about wines with an Irish connection. Bon appétit. Yummy. Grubs up. Delicious. Mmm. Ron, we're going to talk about wines with an Irish connection because a lot of people might not realise that a number of the wines throughout the world were actually yes. started by people that had emigrated from Ireland. Yes, yeah. Well, it goes back to the um, to the 16th century, to the the um, the wild geese, which was the you know the the number of well-to-do Irish people that left in the 1600s, and ended up in, particularly in France, in Sconston, in in Burgundy, and Bordeaux, in the winemaking regions. Um, now, the, later down uh, through the years, it's the same thing has happened in Australia, the same thing happened in South Africa. Uh, and, and even in South America, where Irish people have gone out um, in the last 100, 150 years and been instrumental in building the wine business in Australia, in particular, with a guy called Jim Barry, and in uh, Chile with a guy called um, um, McInnes, um, John McInnes. And that was uh, instrumental in the business because they had some experience of winemaking from Europe, took it out there and found that the conditions for growing grapes were just amazing. And... Uh, and really drove on the business. So, yeah, it's been, it's been a huge thing, but the names, the older ones that went to France, the names that you'd recognise, like Lynch Badge, Chateau Kerwin, uh, Leoville, Barton, all huge Irish connections, as in Irish, original um, immigrants that went over and started them up. So, yeah, yeah, there's a huge connection there. You mentioned Lynch there, and the Michel Lynch wine is, is one that would, would be well-known and would be seen a lot. Absolutely. You'd see it in, the, in shops a lot, um, and then that's the kind that's the kind of retail lower end of the market. Then you go up to, to Lynch Badge, which is the real top end of the market. We're talking about, you know, 150 to 200 euros a bottle um, uh, every year. Like that's the, the, the release about 10,000 cases a year. And that's that's the kind of money you're talking about. So it is all high end wine then? Well, it's 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 pretty high end, yeah. Even if you look at the um, at the Australian Jim Barry, um, the products are, are very high end. Um, for Australia even, they're talking about... 25, 30 euros a bottle um, kind of product. But they, they tended to be uh, pioneers in the business um, and mainly because they went out there with the experience from, from being to France, being probably wine lovers more than wine makers. But when they got the conditions out there and managed to get tracks of land fairly reasonably, easy to start and uh, a lot of trial and error. But they tended to stick at it uh, with a good work ethic and then... As, as anything, when you start something, you start generating interest around it. And then other, other wineries start from immigrants from Germany and uh, Italy, particularly particularly in South America. But yeah, the Irish are very well thought of, um, very well thought of, yeah. I'd imagine their, the Irish and their agricultural skills Absolutely, were yeah. fundamental to them growing the grapes, like they were good at growing things. That's exactly it, the agricultural background. And grapes, all of the wine business seems very... You know, it seems very attractive and very commercial and very, it's, 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 it's as agricultural as you can get. You know, it has tractors, it has soil, it has fertilizers, it has everything that you'd associate with growing anything else. Um, and particularly in a, in a startup scale, it's all about any guy who can start up a winery. You have a, a guy, it went over maybe 10 or 12 years ago over to France, uh, to Fronton in France, which is just below Bordeaux. Uh, a guy called Philip Grant and started a winery called Chateau Bellevue. Um, the winery was there already. He bought uh, an existing um, vineyard, but has turned it into something amazing. But this guy drives a tractor for a living. You know, that's that's what he does. He works hard. He's a farmer, effectively, who just happens to grow grapes and who happens to bottle them as well and turns it into a very good 
good business. If only we had the weather here in Ireland, can you imagine the sort of wine they would be producing here locally? We have, if only. Um, but the only thing is that when we look at the, the, the soil we have, the soil isn't particularly um, um, uh, uh, ideal for growing grapes at all. Uh, we tend to have uh, either two kinds of soil, kind of peaty kind of soil, or we tend to have a lot of limestone um, um good, good soil, which isn't necessarily what they look for to grow grapes. They like a lot of stone. They like a much drier um, thing. And, and, of course, the, way, the reason that our country looks so good is because it rains for 250 days a year, whereas uh, if you're growing grapes, it, it cannot rain. It just cannot rain on a regular basis. It's just not a... They don't go together. I've had Susan Boyle on the show earlier this year. She has written a one-woman wine tasting show. It's called A Wine Goose Chase, in, in keeping with the whole wild geese theme that you mentioned there at the start. And her show is all about wines with Irish connections. Mm. And you and I are bringing this show to West Limerick now on the 6th of November. And you have sponsored three wines for the night, which have yes, Irish yeah, connections. Yeah, Tell us about the three wines that people will get to taste that night. Well, I've mentioned two of them already. Uh, the Bordeaux, the Fronton one, the, the Chateau Bellevue from Philip Grant. We're using that one because it's a very new one. Um, then we're getting much older with a, a, a Muscadet from Loire Valley in France called Domaine de la no, uh, which is an Irish guy who went over again and took over a struggling winery and has turned it into probably one of the most recognisable Muscadets on the market now. And then we're to, we have a, a red wine coming from uh, Chile, from McKenna's in Chile, which is, M- McKenna in Chile is, you know, he's the godfather of, of, uh, of the Central Valley in Chile. So it's, it'll be, it should be very interesting. I'm really looking forward to it. it it's, it's, uh, it's a very theatrical night as well. You know, it's a bit of fun and it's a bit of, um, and a bit of knowledge and a bit of wine. So, you know, those things should be, should work fairly well together, you'd imagine. Do you find that the wines with an Irish connection, the ones that you have in your portfolio, are they quite popular? Or do you think people are, are actually oblivious to the fact that the Irish did go away and start up vineyards and start making wine? But not an awful lot of people know. You see, it's fine if the names pop out, like Lynch badge and, and those where you see Shadow Kerwin or those, where you instantly think that that's an Irish name. God, there must be some connection there. But a lot of them are just the resisting wineries, like that Domaine de la no, which is a winery that's been there for 300 years, um, just bought by an Irish guy who, who turned it around completely. So you'll have those that people won't know anything about. Now, if you were an Irish guy starting out in, in France, you wouldn't be making huge, um, uh, drawing huge attention to the fact that you were Irish making wine in France. Um, so that tends to be kept fairly low-key, except in Ireland. Um, so does. But... Um, but yeah, the, the other thing I suppose to, to think about is that the, the market for these big lynch badge and Kerwins in, in Ireland is phenomenal. Per head of capita, we're the biggest buyer of lynch badge by seven or eight to one against anybody else. And it's just amazing that it is. It's such an expensive product. Well, we look forward to trying the three that you mentioned there and maybe a little bit of Hennessy because there's connections, obviously, with course, Ireland yeah, and yeah. the Hennessy. We might have some of that on the night as well. And thanks a million for coming in tonight to tell us about it. No problem. Cheers. Chin chin. Salut. Schleinte. Thanks again to Ron. And if you'd like to come along to Susan Boyle's Wine Goose Chase Show on Friday the 6th of November, I'll have full details about tickets when they go on sale in a few weeks' time. Or if you're in Northern Ireland, Susan is actually doing her show this Friday night at 7 o'clock and 9 o'clock in the old courthouse in Antrim. Still to come tonight, Sid Sheehan will be calling in to discuss food intolerances and I'll be putting a call in to Mark Murphy at the Dingle Food Festival, which is on from the 2nd until the 4th of October. But before that, it's time to talk to Michelin star chef Oliver Dunn. Oliver was on the show late last year to talk about a calendar that was created to raise money for mental health charity Walk In My Shoes. Well, tonight it's an altogether different topic, namely the effect that no shows have on the restaurant industry. Bon appétit. Yummy. Grubs up. Delicious. Mmm. Oliver, explain to us the issue that restaurants have with no-shows. An ongoing issue um, throughout the year. Um, and like all industries, I suppose, it's not just us. And there's multiple of industries that suffer this. Um, we would have a large volume of customers who would book the restaurant on any given night of the week, whether it be tables of two or whether it be for larger groups, who just don't show up, don't cancel on the night, and we're left standing there waiting for the customers to arrive and lo and behold, they never turn in. So um, it's, it's, it's 
larger than I suppose anyone would imagine, Sharon. It's, it's you know, on, on any given night, you can never tell. Some nights everyone will turn up, of course. But other nights, you could have a huge percentage of people don't turn up. And huge, it could be 20% might turn up. Usually it's on the busier nights as opposed to, you know, because on, on a Friday and Saturday night. And to be very honest, if people don't show up on a midweek night where I'm not full anyway, it doesn't affect me. So it doesn't really bother me for that reason. Um, but on a weekend when you're... And only the only night that would ever be fully booked would be a weekend this day and age when people don't turn up there's huge implications you know you've lost the sale you've lost the revenue you have staff implications who are in on the night to you know cope for the amount you've obviously got the right amount of staff in to cope with the amount of people you have booked and then when they don't show up you have the implication of well the staff literally are sent home early so there's, there's an effect on their salaries and pay um, you have the, the food waste there's loads of other different things goes on you know the other side of it, of course, is for, uh, particularly on the busy nights, for people that have phoned and they want to come, but you don't have availability for them and they're maybe on a cancellation list. Back in the good old days, you used a cancellation list. I don't know when the last time I had one now, maybe on Christmas time you'd have a cancellation list. But usually, you know, people, you're confirming the day before anyway. So if you're ringing up and you're looking for this coming Saturday, for example, um, if we put you on a cancellation, it'll be Friday morning, we'll be letting you know whether you've made cancellation. You know, it wouldn't be. It wouldn't be. We wouldn't be holding on that late in the day, you know. And when and do you, is it is it the norm for you to confirm bookings with people that have made reservations the day before? Yeah, we, yeah. we confirm two ways. So um, everyone who books, we confirm by confirmation by email, as long as they're willing to give emails us to get their confirmation. So we've an automated system. If you book online, you automatically get your confirmation sent to you. But if you book by the phone, we will still ask you for your email. We send you out two confirmations, one by email, and then you'll also get a phone call the day before. And again. We wouldn't practice that on a Tuesday, Wednesday night because there, there's no real point of doing it. You know, we would always do that on our busy night to make sure that everyone's coming. So we can rotate or sell on tables if people have decided or for whatever reason they can't make it. See, it kind of baffles me why if if I go to the lengths of booking a table and something happens for whatever reason and I can't make it, I would always ring up and cancel it. So I can't understand why people would not have the manners to do that. Yeah, like... There's no other way of putting it apart from it's just plain ignorance. Um, but it happens all the time. It's something that I'm campaigning to sort of push and, and highlight, I suppose, be a better word, over the last couple of years. And everyone I talk to, you know, is shocked, you know. But so equally then, everyone who I talk to will all say, yeah, well, I've been out with people and I know people who have done that. I know people who have went out and they book multiple restaurants because they're not sure. And around Christmas time, that is really the case because they're going out with a group of 10 or 12 people and they're not sure where they're going to go so they book X restaurant just to hold it just in case and then they book somewhere else and they never cancel the other one you know um, so Christmas time it's, it's, it's a massive problem it's a much bigger problem I think more people double book restaurants at Christmas than any other time um, and then you're left yeah, and it's your only time at the restaurant that's potentially and you hope to be, to be busy as much as possible obviously um, but it's huge at Christmas really is huge and at Christmas time, you now do take credit card details with bookings. Yeah, so three years ago, or maybe four years ago, I started this. Um, I tried it initially when I first opened, and it wasn't very well received. And I'm going back eight or nine years ago. Um, and it probably wasn't well received because maybe I wasn't doing it correct. Um, so oh, I, I thought about it, and we started again. And when I say I wasn't doing it correct, we, were just, we weren't explaining to the customer. So maybe a customer would ring up. By the book table, we say, take the booking, take the number, and then we go, can we have your credit card table, please, to confirm the booking? And people are a bit leaked out by that. They're a bit sort of, what's this about? No one else asks us this. And they're a bit shocked. And I, I can understand why they would be, because it's not common practice for restaurants in Ireland to ask you for your credit card. Other international cities, it is common practice. But just in Ireland, it isn't. So what I done was, I wrote out a, a whole paragraph. When the customer rings up then, we do ask for the credit card, but we explain it first. So um, due to the high volume of no-shows that we received during the Christmas period, we we just asked for a credit card number to confirm the reservation, just to hold the booking for you. And it's only how we don't process the credit card, we will just hold the booking. And if you don't cancel um, the booking within 24 hours notice, we will charge you a minimum fee of, I think it's 10 or 15 or 20. I actually don't remember what it is. It's, to be honest, thing upstairs. I'll root it out in November. But it's, it's a minimal fee. We would go into it. Some customers would actually be quite intrigued and would ask us about it. Um, but once you explain it, everyone has been absolutely fine. There's not been an issue. And what happens is, I've less no-shows in December than any other time of the year. 
loads of people will ring up and cancel. So you'll the day before or two days before you'll we're canceling our table at six thing. But then at Christmas time you have the first fall to resell them tables. So that's twenty four hour notice, although it's not an awful lot of time, in a busy period like Christmas, it's beneficial. And do you not feel that that, that could work for your Friday, Saturday nights whenever you're busy at other times of the year? A hundred percent it could work. The problem what I think is not really so much of a problem. There's also there's a big amount of work that goes into it from the restaurant point of view. So at Christmas time, we're willing to take on that extra expense, but it is an expense. We, we actually have two staff full-time in the office to chase this for the whole month of December. Because when you ring up to book the restaurant, we're going to ask you for your credit card. As I said at the start, it's not normal in Ireland, but people don't generally have it on them. They mightn't have it out. They could be ringing us from the back. <laughs> I don't know where they're ringing us from. Of course, and we're yeah. saying, can we have your credit card? And they, oh, they don't have it. The hand. So then, in the case of all, we ring you back with. So we have to put a note down. So we'd have Sharon rang up to the booking in credit, didn't have a credit card number, will ring back. So we will ring back and we will chase up again. You might be busy, you might say you'll ring us back again, we'll chase again. And this can go back and forth and back and forth. And the people you'll find who are actually not 100% booking, who have it in their back of their mind that they're, they're potentially not going to go anywhere, they seem to be the ones that are very reluctant to give us because we sort of know. We'll know, you know, after someone know we've, we've called them twice. They keep promising to ring us, but they haven't rang us. And at the table of six, something like that. And we're chasing. And then get to the stage where what do you do? Do you just say, listen, if you don't give us your credit card number, we're going to cancel your booking. Because then you can't do that because they might turn up. So it's a bit of a battle, you know, not a battle, a bit of a mind game, really. You have been lobbying the Restaurant Association of Ireland to get on board with this. Yeah, I think it's very basic. I mean, as I explained it to you there, and, 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 and I assume you, you think the same, that's all it requires. Lobbying the restaurant sounds very official, but it's a case of, come on, lads, you know, just just everyone get on board, just do it for December. At least then there's, you know, five or 600 restaurants doing it, and then it becomes normal. And we can actually solve a huge, huge problem in the catering industry. And so we can actually do something really beneficial to stop this and reduce this. And that would be introduce this certainly at Christmas time when it's at its worst. And then afterwards, let's do the numbers. Let's look at it. Let's say, have a chat about it. Let's say, did it work? Did it not work? Well, why do we like it? Why do we not like it? Did it upset customers? My experience for doing it for the last years, it doesn't upset anyone once you explain the reasons why you're doing it. As a matter of fact, people sympathise with you. It's a positive thing. And then in January, we can decide, you know, well, was it a good practice or not a good practice? And maybe it can continue. And it'll just become commonplace, like when you book a hotel or book an airline or book whatever, holiday or book whatever else. And like multiple cities around the world do the exact same thing. And it's completely not at least commonplace. When you talk to your peers about it, what what do they say back to you? Are they on board with you? Yeah. I've, I've spoke to, to my peers about the problem with no-shows and it's been a conversation of, yeah, we always try you know, to, to try to overbook or underbook. But the general conversation is, yeah, it's the same. You know, they, they all suffer the same. And what happens is you put huge resources into your whole reservation team to counteract this. So you're actually, it's costing us money, even though I'm saying, oh, I've left no-shows at Christmas time. But there's a wage implication to that. You have more staff in. So... It's an easy way to solve this, you know, and I just said the Rest Association of Ireland, simple fact as they are the governing body for restaurants in Ireland, why can't they um, literally send out an email and encourage all their members to do it? It's black and white to me. I don't think it needs, I don't think we need an AGM to discuss it. (laughs) Well, I... And and it could be a hugely beneficial thing to the restaurants in Ireland and for, for the future, forever, so... From, for me, who runs a restaurant, that, if that was a problem solved for me, that was one huge headache off my back. And I tell you, it's, the value of that is, I, I couldn't put a price on it. Well, I think it is something that people would be quite happy to do, like genuine diners would be happy to do. I personally would have no problem with it. I, I do see that the no-show issue is a huge issue on social media because often on on a Friday, Saturday night, you'll see the tweets from chefs right, yeah. who have been let down and people haven't haven't rocked up, and especially in the smaller restaurants that have very small cover, a very small number of covers there, obviously it has a huge effect on them. So, and like in Bon Appetit, for example, I've got I've got sixty seats, you know, fifty five, sixty seats. So you have one table of six doesn't show up. Like that's a lot, a lot of us. That's that's ten percent. Mm-hmm. You know, that's ten percent. And one table of six. Now you told me now you'll have one table of six not show up every Saturday for the rest of the year. I'd take the hand off you. <laughs> I'd be delighted with that outcome. That'd be a positive outcome for me. That's how bad it is. But I also know it's. it's as I said at the start, it's not just restaurant based. It's not just hotel and catering. It's it's it, it goes across the board. It's, it's you know with dentists, it's beauticians. It's it's just what people do. People have no consideration. They just book it. They don't actually think of any implications at all of 
the Ramsgate stuff not showing up and how does it affect businesses and it's, it's huge and I can tell you one little one which shocked me and it sort of made me think in one way I'm, I'm, I'm fighting a losing battle which was I was I was in a waiting room in a hospital, Dublin hospital and we're in the waiting room and on the wall it was just in one of the clinics on the wall was a poster up for um, breast cancer screening 18.6% of all screening for breast cancer mammogram screenings for breast cancer bookings don't show up and I looked at that and I went well there you go so it's about changing the Irish mindset yeah so I thought it was wow you know, that was yeah. powerful you know it's something as, as strong your own health and, and people just book and don't go or whatever the reason uh, and it's just changing yeah it's just for people to maybe have a little bit of consideration because you know there is implications well, speaking of hospitals now, I want to ask you quickly before you go about your campaign to improve the food in hospitals. How is that coming along? Um, it's coming along incredibly slowly. So I suppose it's a year now. Um, we're still plugging at it. I'm still working away at it. I'm, I'm, I'm still talking to various media outlets trying to get keep the pressure on. And, and I appreciate you bringing it up because that's what does keep the pressure on is people talking about it. So I suppose where progress through the not really very far at all. At the moment, I'm waiting on the HSC to come back to uh, grant me access to a hospital. So I've met with two hospitals here in Dublin, um, and we had a, I had a chat with just some team members. But at the end of the day, they have no control over me coming into the hospital. They can't decide whether I'm allowed in or not allowed in. And everyone's sort of passing the book on to everyone else. So it's a case of, you know, the head of the catering department and the head chef will be all happy to no problem and it's you know, happy to move forward and learn new things and putting the hands up saying, yeah, we're not doing things perfectly and we can improve. And, you know, and that was very encouraging. I thought, great. But then it has to go to someone else to approve. And then it has to go to someone else to approve. And then it's put into the HSD. And then it's in another section, another section. And at the end of the day, I think it's um, on, a, on an operational level on the ground that people seem to care. But higher up, they don't seem to really care. That's, that was my view on it. Because, again, I, and maybe I'm naive here, it was a simple thing. I just said, uh, you know, I, I volunteered my time to go in, to have a look, to make some recommendations to whether they're taken up or not taken up completely in the hands. So just to go in and offer my service, I suppose, to improve hospital food, which I believe is very, very easy to do, as I said at the very outset. Well, good luck with that and with your campaign to, to get people to pay deposits in the restaurants. And thanks so much for talking to us about both those subjects tonight. Thanks a million. Pleasure as always. You're listening to The Best Possible Taste on West Limerick 102 FM. Welcome back to tonight's Best Possible Taste. I'm Sharon Noonan and if you've just joined us, before the break, Chef Oliver Dunn was urging us to let restaurants know if we've booked a table and if for some reason we're unable to make it. And at the start of tonight's programme, Ron Forrestal was talking about wines with an Irish connection and you'll have the opportunity to taste some of these if you come along to Susan Boyle's amazing one-woman wine tasting show, A Wine Goose Chase, which is on... Friday the 6th of November in West Limerick and I'll be releasing details about how to get tickets for that in a few weeks time. Never fear if you've missed some of the show as it will be up on the Best Possible Taste podcast later in the week along with all the previous shows and you'll find the podcast on soundcloud.com forward slash food dash and dash drink dash show. And still to come tonight, I'll be talking to Mark Murphy at the Dingle Food Festival to get a heads up on Kerry's premier food festival. And that's on in just a few weeks time from the 2nd until the 4th of October. Next, though, I'm delighted to be joined in studio by my next guest, chef nutritionist Sid Sheehan. Cheers. Chin chin. Salut. Schleite. Sid, thanks for coming in this evening. Thanks, Will, for having me in. And tonight we're going to talk about food intolerances. Yes. Which is different to food allergies. Yeah, there is a huge difference between food intolerance and food allergy. Now, unfortunately, they get used kind of in the same context quite a lot. But we'll just kind of have a very quick look at the two. Um, a lot of people will be able to identify, I think, with a food intolerance uh, more easily than a food allergy. So the main difference is a food allergy can be fatal a food intolerance will not be. So that's probably the most important thing. Um, having worked in restaurants over the years, in lots of kitchens, people would come in and say, I'm highly allergic to onions. 
you know, if you were highly allergic to onions, to be honest, they're not really classed as one of the uh, hyperallergenic foods. So you, you couldn't possibly eat out if you have an extreme allergy to onions. It might be just somebody's kind of personal dislike. But it is used quite a lot. Um, so again, we'll just look at a few differences between the two. Um, with a food allergy, uh, whatever the food may be, the re- reactive food, you will react to that very, very quickly after eating. So it's an immediate response. Um, so would you go into something like anaphylactic shock? You I can do. That word correctly. Um, so yes. peanuts or something like that yeah. is a very serious so allergy to have. A nut allergy or a peanut allergy, because peanuts, again, they're not actually part of the nut family, um, even though they're kind of classed as the most common nut in the world. But they're not actually a nut. They come under le- the legume family, so like chickpeas and pulses and beans. So they're a specific or a separate allergen. There are 14 listed allergens under EU legislation at the moment. Um, but again, these allergens. So if you did have a peanut allergy, you can go into anaphylactic shock very, very quickly after consumption within seconds. And it can be fatal within within minutes. Um, so that's a food allergy. A food intolerance is a little bit harder to identify because it takes longer for the symptoms to develop. It can take up to 48 hours. So let's just say the milk that you have in your Weetabix this morning, that might not react with you until midnight tonight or the following morning. So it is harder to establish what it is, what's causing it. Um, we'll look at a few of them. Basically, they, they're both um, an unpleasant reaction to a particular food or a food group or a beverage. Uh, some of the more common ones that a lot of people will identify with are dairy, um, wheat, Gluten is a separate one that we could talk about in a lot of detail in itself, but we might look at that at another stage on its own. Okay. Um, eggs are another one that a lot of people are reacting to. Um, yeast is another one that um, quite a lot of people have an intolerance to. Now, I suppose the question is, why do people have food intolerances so much now compared to you know, a couple of decades ago. It's quite simply the way food has been altered, uh, genetically modified. There's a lot of antibiotics. There's a lot of pesticides on different foods um, and they're making their way through the food chain. So that's basically what a food intolerance is and that's how we have become hypersensitive to different foods. It's because of how they're altered. And what sort of symptoms would you experience if you were intolerant to a certain food? Um, We can look at uh, wheat. Um, We look at wheat and dairy, so they're probably two of the more common ones. It's estimated at the moment in Ireland between 40 and 45% of the population would have an intolerance or a sensitivity to wheat and dairy. To both of them? Yeah, because they can go hand in hand. Because what a lot of people will do is if they have an intolerance to wheat, they will come off the wheat they will continue to have dairy and a couple of weeks or a couple of months might pass and they will still experience the same symptoms. So they think, okay, maybe it wasn't the wheat. What has actually happened is the wheat is getting through the food chain in the cattle down into the finished product in the milk. So you're still getting a byproduct of the wheat when you drink milk or consume dairy. Uh, so it's still sneaking in there like that it is hard to identify you can go for a food intolerance test it's something that I practice at the clinic at home which we can look at in a few minutes Um, symptoms associated with either of these wheat a lot of people will get heartburn reflux it's something that a huge amount of people experience so let's just say if you have sandwich a white bread sandwich um, or if you have a bowl of pasta you'll get this kind of lethargic feeling after eating it a lot of people will say to me I had to throw myself down for 20 minutes or half an hour after eating my bowl of pasta because I had zero energy why is that? because if you have an intolerance to some of these foods you, your body in response to these can produce natural morphine in your small intestine and you get this wave of morphine passing through your system that lasts for about 20 minutes traveling through your bloodstream and you're just completely wiped after it and then it will start to ease off and your energy will pick up again so that can be and dairy can produce morphines as well there are two different types there's glutomorphine which is associated it's in response to gluten or there's casomorphine which is in response to casein which is the protein component of milk So again, like I said, we can go into a lot of detail on them, but we're just going to look at top line stuff tonight. Um, I myself suffered for years and years with a dairy intolerance. I didn't know what it was. Um, I was taking painkillers every day of the week. This went on for years, and it was only when I went back to college a couple of years back um, in 2010, I think, to study as a nutritionist. One of my lecturers pointed out to me that, you know, I would come back from maybe our lunch break, and then this headache would start to develop maybe within an hour or two. 
So she said, look, go for a food intolerance test. She said, it sounds like you might have an intolerance to dairy. And sure enough, I did. As soon as I came off there, because I would get this horrendous headache, these sinus problems, a blocked nose, um, all around my eye socket, this real kind of sharp kind of tenderness. So sure enough, when I came off dairy, within a week of eliminating it out of my diet, the symptoms stopped. Oh. So I have now gotten to a stage where I can control it myself. If I overconsume dairy for a little while over the course of a few weeks, then if I feel the symptoms starting to creep back up again, I'll cut dairy out of my diet. So I've got it under control myself. But I did need to do a food intolerance test in the first place to identify it. Well, let's talk about the food intolerance testing just for a second. What is involved in it? Okay, so the food intolerance testing that I do at the clinic at home, it's um, a York test laboratory. So it's a blood test, uh, but it's just done through a pinprick. So it's not invasive or anything like that. It only takes a couple of seconds. Uh, That blood sample then will be sent off to the laboratory in England and it's screened um, against up to 150 different foods and beverage as well. Uh, So the price depends on which test you opt for. You can go for the lowest, which is 50 foods, and you can go for the maximum, the biggest test, which is 150 plus. Um, They can be quite expensive, but I think if you are suffering with chronic um, symptoms like that every day of the week, it's not normal to have to live with something like that. So do spend the money at some stage, save it up, they cost between 149 and 299 Again, you can have a look on the website if you like uh, just to get more details on them or you can contact me and I can give you a rundown on them. But the blood test then, it's sent off so I will get the results back and I'll call the patient back in to go through whatever, sh- or whatever food has been flagged for them. And you don't have to eliminate that food for the rest of your life. That's the thing with a food intolerance. You can overcome a food intolerance. Generally, with a food allergy, you have to eliminate that food for the rest of your life. So let's just say again, if your food intolerance test shows up that you are intolerant or hypersensitive to wheat. Okay, you eliminate wheat out of your diet for a period of three months. Then you can start incorporating that food back in on a day to day basis. And if you realize that after a week or two, you know, I can handle this, then that's fine. Have it in moderation. Now, sometimes, depending on the severity of the reaction, if you react or if you start getting your symptoms back really quickly, then that's your own body's way of telling you that this food does not agree with you. That's quite simply what a food intolerance is. It's our own body's defense mechanism to tell you that this, your body sees this as a foreign object, so it doesn't want it in there. That sounds like an awful lot of foods now. If you can get one for 50 or 150, there must be some fairly obscure foods. There are quite a lot of them in there. Um, Some of them would be flagged for people that, you know, you might think, God, I never eat that. But it could be just as an ingredient in a food and you would be so hypersensitive to it. um, A tiny, tiny amount of it would show up in in your bloodstream. So it is quite good. Like that, the 50 foods covers the basics. Um, but if you do, if you're going to spend the money, I would suggest to people, you know, go for the 100 or even the 150 foods. Um, I think it's well worth it anyway, especially if you're living with um, chronic symptoms for years. And there's so many people out there that think it's just normal. I always get heartburn after I eat bread. But sure, everybody feels like that. Nobody should feel like that. Nobody should have to live their life like that. So, And the same with kids as well. It's not just adults. Kids can have food intolerances and they can break out in different um, parts of their body. Um, you can have skin problems. This is a huge one. My own daughter had um, an intolerance to dairy and I did the food intolerance test on her. And sure enough, when it came back, we eliminated dairy out of her diet. And within about six weeks, she had a really bad skin condition on the soles of her feet and it started to clear up. Now, there are other things as well at play here. Something you do need to do, you can eliminate all the foods you want out of your diet. But if your immune system, like we spoke about in the past, has been compromised, then you know, you can do all, put all the supplements you want in, you can eliminate all the foods you want and it won't make any difference. So you do need to boost your immune system. You need to get probiotics in there. So these are the good bacteria that are going to start healing your gut. So you want to start at the gut, repair the gut wall, seal it and heal it, and then put in supplements as well. Um, And just something on supplements, supplements are not a substitute. They're only a supplement as part of a good, healthy, balanced diet as well. Okay. Well, you mentioned bread there and you actually have a bread recipe for us. I do, because this is something that comes up quite a lot. People, because bread is such a staple part of our diet in Ireland, people always say to me, I can't have dairy, I can't have wheat, 
what can I have because I can't have bread and they don't want to go out and buy you know a lot of the ones on the shelves in the supermarkets uh, there's a lot of gluten free breads out there some of them are quite nice again some of them not so nice this bread recipe that I have this is using spelt flour now spelt flour is not a gluten free grain um, it is a form of wheat but a lot of people that would have an intolerance or sensitivity to wheat can handle spelt because it's an ancient grain so it hasn't really been altered or tampered with over the years uh, this bread it is dairy free it's egg free it's yeast free um, it's quite it's very simple to make and it's quite satisfying kind of filling bread as well so will I run through the recipe do, yes, do. Um, for this again I'll put this recipe up on the website and on the Facebook page as well but uh, what goes into it it's whole grain spelt flour which you will pick up in any health food shop um, I know Tesco's uh, do one uh, Odlums do their own brand as well so whole grain spelt flour uh, baking powder a little bit of salt water and molasses which is black treacle and it's a good opportunity as well with this if you want to get this bread into kids and if you want to get some extra kind of nutrients and stuff into them put in some ground seeds uh, so you can buy a good milled linseed mix um, pumpkin seeds all these different ones you can play around with the recipe yourself but as once you get the basic one right then you can put in different nuts and seeds it's very very simple to make um, the only thing with this I would say make sure you have the oven preheated for this bread and when you do mix the wet ingredients with the dry ingredients Spelt is a very fragile grain, so it, can, it tends to break down very fast. So you do, as once you incorporate the two, the wet and the dry, you need to get it mixed into a preheated oven within about two minutes, ideally. Okay. Um, if you don't, if you overmix it, if you t- if you end up putting it into a cold oven, it's not going to work. So the the gluten in spelt can deactivate. So, but it is very simple. Um, it takes about two minutes to put this bread together. Okay. There's, there's no kneading or anything involved in it. You don't need a mixer. All you need is two bowls one for your wet ingredients, one for your dry ingredients, mix it by hand into an oiled loaf tin, maybe line the base of it with a little bit of baking parchment. I've kind of learnt over, the, over time. Um, it does tend to stick to the bottom of the tin. Pop it out of the tin. It takes an hour in the oven. So preheat the oven. It's really important to have the oven preheated for this. It takes an hour to cook. Let it cool down. If you're the only person in the house, you know, having this bread, slice it down, wrap it individually in cling film, and, you know, you can take it straight from the freezer and pop it into the toaster. What temperature does the oven need to uh, be? 180 Celsius or gas mark 4. Okay. So it's a really, really simple one to do. So just put all the dry, mix all the dry ingredients together in one bowl, all the wet ones in the other bowl, and yeah. then combine the two, mix it up. That is it. So the only... Don't overmix it. Don't overmix it. The, the only wet ingredients you have in there is your water and your molasses. It might be an idea when you put in, I think it's um, a tablespoon of molasses uh, that goes in with just over 500 mils of water. So maybe dissolve it in a little bit of warm water first because otherwise the, the molasses can kind of lodge in the bottom of the bowl. Um, whisk it all together, the, the molasses and the water. Mix that into your dry ingredients. Quick mix by hand. Uh, just bring it all together and it will be quite a wet, sloppy mix. It won't resemble um, soda bread mix. So it is quite, it's more like a batter. Just pour that into your oiled tin lined with baking parchment on just on the base and straight into the preheated oven and it takes an hour. Okay, fantastic. And you're going to put that recipe up on your website? Yeah, I'm going to put that one up and like that. It is a good one if you have food intolerances. It's dairy-free, sugar-free, egg-free, and it's a candida diet friendly as well. Um, So there's no yeast in it. So it is a good bread, a good all-round kind of a healthy bread. And the web address is? The web address is www.nourishedbynature.ie and you can follow us on Facebook as well. And Facebook is Nourished by Nature Listol. Fantastic. Sid, thanks so much for coming in tonight. Thanks a million for having me in, Sharon. You're listening to The Best Possible Taste on West Limerick 102 FM. Welcome back to The Best Possible Taste. I'm Sharon Noonan. And just before the break, you heard Sid Sheehan discussing food intolerances. And earlier in the show, Chef Oliver Dunn was urging us to let restaurants know if we've booked a table and for some reason were unable to make it. And at the start of tonight's programme, Ron Forrestal was talking about wines with an Irish connection. You will have the opportunity to taste some of these if you come along to Susan Boyle's amazing one-woman wine tasting show, A Wine Goose Chase, on Friday the 6th of November in West. Limerick and I'll be releasing details about how to get tickets for that in a few weeks time. You can listen to those interviews again when tonight's show in its entirety goes up in the best possible taste podcast which is on soundcloud.com and I'll be putting the show up there later on in the week.
Okay, so at the start of the month, Sinead Hennessy from Fulcher Ireland provides us with details of what food events we have to look forward to. And Sinead will be back in a couple of weeks' time, all being well, with info for October. However, her next appearance will be after the Dingle Food Festival. And as it's one of the biggest food festivals in Ireland, I didn't want you to miss out finding out all about it. So on the line now, I have Mark Murphy, who is the co-chair of this year's organising committee. Bon appétit. Yummy. Grubs up. Delicious. Mmm. Mark, you are the joint chair of this year's Dingle Food Festival. It's in its ninth year, which I couldn't believe. I thought it had been going longer, actually. And you've a great lineup of events again this year. Yes, Sharon. It's, uh, it's just so great. It's this time of the year, we really, really look forward to it. Um, massive lineup again this year. Um, it has become just one of the big events around the area and one of our biggest weekends of the year. Like, we've got some incredible cookery demonstrations, some great food workshops and food-related workshops, some whiskey tasting. We've got a massive food trail going around the town. So the whole idea is that you eat your way around the town again. Some great market stalls coming and massive kids area that we're putting in again this year and even working on making it bigger and better than last year but generally looking at making the festival better each year that's what we're looking forward to Sharon Well let's talk first about the cookery demos because you've a great lineup of well-known people coming along Yeah that's that's correct we have um, with people like Rory O'Connell who's just such an incredible guy incredible teacher he's coming along we have Mark Moriarty, who won recently won Best Young Chef in the World, and he's going to be coming along to do a demonstration. We have people like Aaron Caprell from Green Saffron, and he's going to be teaching us about how to use spices, maybe with some local food and stuff like that. His spices are just unbelievable. We have Karen Coakley from Kenmare Foodies. We have Kate Lawler uh, from Fens Key. And then a few local chefs turn in as well. So really good lineup, and they're going to be happening in Benners both Saturday and Sunday of the festival, and they're they're free of charge. Fantastic, and that's the cookery demonstrations. And then you mentioned there the taste trail, which I think really is very—it's just synonymous with the Dingle Food Festival. Yeah, it really is, and it has become probably the highlight of the festival for for everybody involved, but also for everybody that comes to the festival. And what it is to your listeners, if they've never experienced a taste trail before, this year we have about 75 locations all around town. And that can be restaurants, it could be shop, it could be whatever it is. They all offer a small food, uh, food, off, uh, food offering. And basically you buy a book of tickets, uh, two euro each, and you pretty much eat your way around town. When you arrive in town, we'll give you a program, a free program. In the program, you will have a list of all the locations and what you can eat there. And the the best part about it is it's just this huge social event. So you might be queuing up just to have, say, a little, some local scallops. And the next one might be, say, some smoked salmon, some brown bread or a little tasting of cider or whatever. And you're just constantly moving around the town. So the best thing about it is it really spreads the festival to every single location around the town. But it's, it's, yeah, it's definitely the highlight for everybody. And lots of markets taking place. We have a lot of uh, markets. Like, and it has a, become again, a, I think it's also a really good time of year. But what you find is we would have about 55 market places. And, but even the applications. At this stage, we could get two or 300 uh, applications just for those 50 stalls or 55 stalls. That's um, amazing, isn't it? It really is. It's incredible. Like, let's go back to, it's our ninth year. Nine years ago, I remember, like, ringing people and begging people. And I think our first year, we had something like six stalls at us. Um, just trying to get people to turn up and trying to sell the idea where now... It's one of those events where we've so many people want to come and want to be part of it, which is brilliant because it's also a testament to what good food is out there <clears throat> in Kerry, in, in West Limerick, in Limerick, in, in all of Ireland. Like, and that's where our producers are coming from. We're coming from sort of looking at a Munster area first, and then they, we have some people looking for market stalls coming as far as Armagh and places like that. It's, it's unbelievable. 
Well, it is such a great opportunity to showcase your products. And I'm sure you have some exciting and new emerging food producers that are going to be there. And the Blossnairn Awards, the Food Awards, are just huge. It's massive. That has grown to be such a huge event and also such an important event for not just for the festival itself, but for Irish food producers that they can actually come down to Dingle and win an award that they're quite very proud to put on their packaging to say that they have been chosen within their category as the best of or to win a a silver prize or whatever. And it now carries carries huge weight amongst producers but also amongst the buyers and stuff and it's it's become a very recognisable brand uh, with everyone as well but this year they've had I think it's grown again to just uh, it's got such a massive response of entries and basically what happens then they will be the the shortlist um, has come out they will be judged just on the few days prior to the festival and then during the festival the winners are announced and it's it has become a huge event during the festival. It's brilliant because, again, it brings producers and it brings so much interest and showcases really what projects we have in Ireland. It's, it's fantastic, Shane. Absolutely. And food festivals are always a great weekend for families and you're putting more focus into the kids' area this year. Yeah, we really are. We're working with, um, we're working with a company to really get to grow the kids' events. And for the most part of it, like all the kids' entertainment are going to be free. So what we're trying to do is trying to encourage as many families. And within that, we're going to have your bouncy castles, but also maybe a little bit of education about food as well. Like one thing we're looking at is, is putting in, in a small area, we've got some, uh, we're hoping to work with Camp Hill where we'll get in some some cows and haven't been milked and just show kids how how and where food comes from. But the kids' event itself, like last year, it was a huge success. But this year, we've even we've raised our budget on that, and we put way more stuff in again. Because what we want at the end of the day, we want our festival first of all to be a very accessible festival to everyone that's here that comes to the festival. We don't want to ever come across as a festival that's elitist or anything like that. We want it to be a festival that absolutely every person can engage with, and I think we do that very well. And even for the most part, the majority of our events are, there's a lot of free events happening, and especially with our kids and stuff, we really want to attract families and let them allow the kids to really enjoy themselves and allow the kids to really say as well that, you know, that the food festival is one of their biggest weekends and one of the weekends that they love throughout the year. It is super that you can put on so many free events because it is a voluntary committee that puts this festival together and it is a non-profit making festival. Yeah, it is. Like, and we're, we're fortunate enough. We have at this stage, we have, we have a large committee, and it is. It's all voluntary. So we meet. We start meeting probably from about March or April, and we work together. And we really divide it out. And then it's. It has become a massive festival now. That there is a lot. We really need to get out, and we do have to do a serious amount of fundraising first. We get some of our fundraising from from knocking on doors from a couple of small fundraiser events then from seeking out sponsorship and stuff like that but we put a lot of work each year into really fundraising because each year itself the festival grows and the responsibilities grow with the festival and then obviously the the cost of the festival grows and each year you want to put on not so much a bigger festival, but you want to put on a better festival. You really want to give the customers more, more further, uh, further visit down here. And really, it's all about, really, it's all about showcasing what we have here and giving people a reason to come visit us, maybe at another time of the year or whatever. Now, it has to be said, it is a very special time for you personally because you will be celebrating one year of the Dingle Cookery School. Yeah, that's brilliant. It's definitely, we're never going to forget the date anyway. Um, it's brilliant, yeah. So myself and Marin Nigelarua, um, we this year, it's, a, it's our first year. So we opened last year and we've had we've had a really successful year. We've run so many different courses from baking to uh, cooking to improve your cookery skills to fermentation. The list just goes on. So many different skills and courses and it's just been a fabulous year we've been really supported by 
local people, people from all over Ireland. And then in the summer, we did a great season from people from visitors from all over the world. Um, so, yeah, and it is, it's really good. And what we're planning this year ourselves for the festival is to have a presence on the street ourselves. So we hope to have um, a small sort of marquee where we will be... Um, just doing maybe a couple of live demonstrations. We might have a few cook-offs and some of that. Very, very informal, but also just that we have a presence there, that we can actually get to meet a lot of people. But it'll be a lot of fun. So we'll be based on Orchard Lane, where there will be a lot of market stalls and stuff. And we'll be just, a lot of it will be just very simply showing you maybe how to cook a piece of fish in five minutes. Or maybe we might just um, have a lot of different audience participation. But the whole thing about it is just, few workshops have a bit of fun and teach people as well. Have you found that Dingle being the first foodie town from the RAI has has had a great impact in terms of publicity on the festival and indeed on the cookery school? Yeah, it has. It's been brilliant for for both the cookery school and it has been for the town itself. Um, It really has, like, and we're we're fortunate where we are that we've got so many uh, producers, so many good restaurants, like we really are like and it has like there's been a lot of the publicity itself that we've got over but also the awareness from people themselves that they actually they, a lot of people really know when they come into town that oh yeah you're the foodie town and the good thing about that as well is it pushes your expectations and standards you have to meet these standards and for the most part I think we've managed that and done it really well and it's, it has it's been an incredible thing and I know the competition is coming up soon and I would really urge any town to get out there regardless of the size of town and really get in and and fight for your place in there because it is so important and it would be brilliant if every single town in Ireland or village could just highlight what they have regardless if it's just their local butcher their local farmer whoever it is just show off what we have because we've got incredible people around here and around Ireland in general just producing food well, it's on from the 2nd until the 4th of October. Dinglefoodfestival.com is the web address. But before you go, Mark, what is your personal highlight this year? What's the one event people shouldn't miss? Um, geez, it's going to be hard for me to narrow it down to one. I would say personally to see Rory O'Connell cooking. He's just someone that really inspires people. Or maybe Mark Moriarty, the young guy, who's just an example of someone so young cooking at such a high level um, for them they're probably or else if it was allowed another one I would say maybe some of our workshops like we've got a fermentation workshop on Sunday and that's going to be fantastic it really is from my goodness that's the name of the people going to be looking after it Okay, fantastic listen Mark it's been great to talk to you this evening best of luck with it I look forward to popping down myself at some stage Thanks very much, Sharon, and we look forward to seeing you and everybody. Cheers. Chin chin. Salut. Schleunter. Great to talk to Mark, and if you get to the Dingle Food Festival, I'd love to hear your personal highlights, so be sure to drop me a line, s.nunan at live.ie, or tweet me at Queen of Org, as in Queen of Organisation. That brings us to the end of tonight's show. Thanks for joining me, and of course, a huge thanks to all of tonight's guests, Ron Forrestal, Oliver Dunn, Sid Sheehan and Mark Murphy. Too many men there. I'll have to have more women next week. A final reminder that the Best Possible Taste podcast is online at soundcloud.com forward slash food dash and dash drink dash show. And speaking of next week's show, it's actually a second helping show because we've the fifth Tuesday this month. So you'll have a chance to hear again some of the interviews from previous shows. I'll be back the following week with an all new show. Until then, mind yourselves, wrap up warm and bon appetit. Do you want to get in touch with the best possible taste? Do you want to come on, share a recipe, review a cookery book, or just have a general chat about what you like to eat and drink? All you have to do is get in touch with me, Sharon Noonan, by sending an email to s.noonan at live.ie or send me a tweet at Queen of Org. Bon appétit!